One of the things that the story of Jacob keeps showing us is how difficult it is for um, Jacob to find a home, right? A place where he and his family can settle and be safe. And surprisingly, uh, that doesn't change when he finally returns to Canaan, the actual land of promise. Why? Well, because Canaanites are there. We saw this last week. So as the narrative centered on Jacob begins to come to a close in chapter 35 tonight, Jacob has to find a way to live in a land that technically belongs to him, right? By way of God's promise, but is currently possessed, inhabited by God's enemies. He has to find a way to survive and prosper while keeping himself and his family separate from Canaanites, even though he lives and presumably has to work among them. And so Jacob is a picture of believers at this point. As much as he is a picture of our Savior who became flesh very far from home and dwelt among us, and as Israel, the nation of Israel that is later reached the borders of the Promised Land, they, of course, were going to have to deal with Canaanites also. God's command to them was not only to come out and be separate, but, if you remember, to destroy their enemies. As you and I stand tonight on the verge of the new heavens and the new earth, Our calling is not to purge the earth of God's enemies, but to make disciples of them. We haven't been promised a home here. That's not what we're fighting for, to take or to keep. Here we have no lasting city. But while seeking the city which is to come, we do still have to live in this world. And so until Jesus returns to put an end to all things that are and begins the new heavens and the new earth, we live in a promise. We are called to disengage from this world and to reject its false powers and loyalties through faith in the promise of God alone. Let's pray. Father, I thank you tonight for your word. I thank you for the truth of the text that stands, whether we do or not. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us see clearly, you would help us understand and believe what the word means tonight. We ask and pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Look at verse 1 here of of chapter 35. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. When we read chapter 35, in light of chapter 34, we see it as this counterpoint to what we saw there, what we saw back in Chapter 34, first of all, God is rescuing Jacob and his family here. He's pulling them away from this situation. Despite the mess, really, surrounding uh, the defilement of Dinah on both sides, God is relentlessly committed, again, to his promise. Get up, go to Bethel, get out of this place. Bethel was the place, if you remember, where God first revealed himself to Jacob in 28, 10 through 22. God has to tell Jacob to go back there, to dwell there, make an altar there. The Word of God, notice this, recalls the promise of God for Jacob. That's the reference point. Bethel is the place where Jacob had also made a vow to God, and a return there would confirm God's covenant faithfulness to him. Jacob realizes the significance of this, as we see in the passage in how he prepares his family to go back there. Pick it up in verse 2. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. 
Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. This means the family as a whole has been defiled and they need to be purified. They still possess foreign gods and they are apparently beginning to dress like Canaanites now, which was something very distinct at that time. But in his mercy, rather than rejecting them, rejecting them, he calls them out of this and to himself because remember, always God had made promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and now to Jacob. And so when Jacob explains the reason for their move in verse 3, he acknowledges God's faithfulness by confessing that he is the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. In other words, Jacob says God has always kept his promise to me. And he, he's, he's, he's calling us. God is our home. We should go where he calls us to go. We should be where he wants us to be. <clears throat> but obviously Jacob's household is divided to some degree, right? Despite his ongoing struggles, he acknowledges God's role in his life, but some still harbor idols. Maybe there wasn't a, a true commitment to have faith in God when he built the altar in Succoth. Maybe there was some um, looseness there. Jacob reacted, we saw in 34, in fear rather than in faith in Shechem and was not a blessing to those around him. But now God is called to him once more and God's salvation will have an impact on the family as a whole or on his whole household. Pick up in verse 4. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. So while Jacob and his family are traveling to Bethel, a terror from God, wonder what that was like, fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. God is protecting them from retribution for what they did to the men of Shechem, the city of Shechem. The children of promise then, remember this, beloved, are sometimes protected by God even from the consequences of their own actions. A spiritual foundation then is being laid for Israel and for us to be God's child is to be irrevocably God's child. Sometimes, sometimes, we're shown mercy that even saves us from the consequences of our own actions on the earth. That doesn't always happen, but it does happen, meaning our God is more merciful than we even realized, than we could have imagined. Now, we're not learning here, just as Jacob wasn't learning, that we never have to face the consequences of our actions we are learning in this mercy what Jacob needed to learn. If God is like this, if this God that has made promises to Jacob and has called him out, that has called out you and I and made promises to us, if he is like this, if he is this good and this powerful and this merciful, it would have been better to just trust him from the beginning with the situation in Shechem rather than to have taken matters into their own hands. Just trust God from the outset, beloved. He will not lead us astray. We never have to take matters into our own hands. 
Jacob and his family return to Bethel. He builds an altar, calls the place El Bethel, El Bethel, because this was the place where God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. With Again, he was being shown mercy from the immediate consequences of his actions. The author then gives us this little editorial note here so that we keep our bearings in the narrative. We're, we're still on the earth, verse 8. And Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakuth, which means, I think, oak of weeping or weeping. So, in other words, the author's reminding you that the years are passing for Jacob. He's, he's, he's getting older. They're all getting older. Rebecca's nurse dies. She's buried there. there there's, there's weeping. There's mourning for her to the degree that they name this place after her. And then God returns to Jacob. Look at verse 9. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. See, the commission isn't changing, is it? God has a plan for the world. I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. So God appears to Jacob, blesses him again. And the first thing he does is confirm the fact that Jacob was given a new name, Israel. God is reminding Jacob there that he belongs to him. He's marked him. He's intervened in his life to make him his own. Jacob should be fully committed to the Lord who saved him. Then God confirms his name, his own name, so that it's clear who does what in this covenant. God's character, also demonstrated by his name, and the name he uses is God Almighty, or El Shaddai in Hebrew. That recalls who God has always been for Jacob's family, from chapter 17, verse 1, and the fact that this God has the power to fulfill his promises, of course, which he then confirms in the following verses, Jacob's descendants now are the ones who will become a great nation. Kings will come from him. The land that God had promised to Abraham will be given to not just him, but his descendants. After confirming Jacob's name, his character, and his promise, God went up from him back into heaven. So we pick it up in verse 14. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Jacob responds to God by worshiping him in fulfillment of his vow. He sets up a memorial, a stone pillar that is set apart by a drink offering and oil. That's a parallel to what he had done when he was first at Bethel, the house of God in 28, 18 and 19. And Jacob is now free to live with assurance that God will act for him as he trusts him and follows him, even in a land filled with strangers and enemies. Now, as we mentioned at the beginning, the purification of Jacob and his family that takes place in chapter 35 is a counterpoint to the defilement they experienced in chapter 34. That's how we should really read the whole chapter, or at least this section, the process of God purifying his children so that they are able to live undefiled by Canaan as his own children of promise, which all these things at least imply then 
that living in Canaan must be risky business for the children of promise. In other words, the potential for defilement is always going to be there as long as they're in Canaan and Canaanites are in the land. And Jacob, Israel that is, is not free at this point to go around killing Canaanites. That's not his calling. He also isn't free to leave the land and try and set up a home elsewhere. So they have to find a way again to survive and to remain in Canaan, and yet, in the midst of all that, remain faithful to God. The way God accomplishes this for Jacob and his family immediately is through symbols, right? For the family of Jacob, this is first done by rituals. So Israel can be in the land, but they must be ritually purified. In verse 2 and in verse 4, they have to set themselves apart entirely for them. This meant putting away the foreign gods, getting those household gods out of their homes, removing earrings that would have symbolized idol worship or tribalism. They had to purify themselves, probably ritual, outward washing. They had to change their clothing. So stop wearing Canaanite clothes. Again, the clothing issue is not like it is today. It's not simply that like the Canaanites wore pants and they didn't. There wasn't anything like that. It would have been uh, they, they, their dress was characterized by the gods they worshipped and the things they indulged in and were involved in. And Jacob's family is not a Canaanite family. They didn't live like Canaanites. They weren't supposed to act like Canaanites. It's interesting that God wants that crystal clear now after Dinah's defilement in Shechem and the response of Jacob's sons. God wants to restate the fact that even though they were acting like it in doing what they did in Shechem, these are not Canaanite people. This is not a Canaanite family. The family was set apart from the Canaanites then by the actions we see in the early part of the text. They can still be, so it's possible for God's people to still be God's people in a foreign land. They can still be citizens and yet disengage from the values and powers of the world around them. Now, you and I don't have a land in the world like this. You and I, however, have a promise. We live in the promise, not in the land, but in the promise while we live in this world. What has God done for us? Walk back through the passage in light of our salvation and God's promise to us in Jesus Christ. What has he done? He has called us out of the darkness into his marvelous light. He's called us away from this world in 1 Peter 2.9. Once we were not a people, but now we are God's people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. But what brought us near to God when we were estranged and alienated from him? What purified us? What made us clean? What made us whole? The blood of his son, Jesus Christ, Ephesians 2.13, and the washing of water by the word. Ephesians 5.26. So our being set apart is not necessarily ritualistic. It's not categorically seen in different clothing, although it may call for that at times, or ceremonial washings. Although we could say that baptism visibly sets us apart, just as the Lord's Supper does by being a meal of which we partake of exclusively as believers. But overall, the mark that sets us apart as God's people now in this world is spiritual. Beloved, it's not external, it's internal. God's promise to us is symbolized in our lives mainly that we belong to Him by faith. 
We are called then to disengage from this world and to reject its false powers and loyalties, not really by the clothes we wear, these kinds of things, but through faith in the promise of God alone. We disengage from hoping and trusting in the powers that be to save us, in the values that control the world and the desires of the flesh that corrupt lives and corrupt relationships and cultures and societies. Remember, we are being called away from this, but to something else. Right. Our purifying is not so that we become a come and see people, but so that we become a go and tell people before Jesus went up. Right. After he'd made his promises to us, secured our redemption. When Jesus went up in the ascension, what did he do? He commissioned us to go into the world with this message, the way in which we remain separate from the world we live in. When what marks us is a message is by an attitude of the heart and mind that trusts that message and the God who sustains or the God who made it to sustain and preserve our lives rather than hoping in the world and what they long for and desire. That's what genuinely sets apart a Christian from a non-Christian, right? It's, it's not mainly dress or behavior or speech, although Those things are generally going to be affected in one way or the other. But remember in 1 Peter, when Peter talks about the believer having to make a defense, what is it that the believer has to make a defense for having? His hope. right? His hope. Something that's intangible. right? Unless it's seen in the way and the attitude with which someone lives their life. This is what marks us as distinctly being God's people in the world. This is how we learn to live in and live in this land and navigate in the world as people of hope. So we haven't been commissioned to kill, for example. We've been commissioned to die. We haven't been commissioned to love or or to hate people, but to love them. We haven't been commissioned to take from people, but to give to people. That means if that's the case, if that's what we've been called to, you have to live by faith because it's a jungle. Out there, the law of the jungle, kill or be killed, survival of the fittest, that's the way of the world. How do people of hope and faith navigate when the world is like that? They have to be very careful. Again, wise as serpents, innocent as doves, eyes on Christ. It's a dangerous place out there. Everywhere we go, we're going to be contaminated in one way or the other. Again, I don't say that because we're clean and the world's dirty. It's the simple fact, I mean, we're, we're all sinners. It, it, it's, that's not the distinction that's being made. What marks us as God's own is faith in Him for salvation. Nothing is going to set us apart distinctly as God's people then, like the fact that we aren't looking to this world, or to ourselves for that matter, for any hope, for life, for salvation. That makes the church an alternative culture in the world, beloved, ideally. That it's made up of people that don't demand salvation and life and fulfillment from other people. That's what really marks the church as the church in the world. Because faith rather than fear drives our actions. Right? We aren't people of panic. We aren't people of terror in this family We don't hold grudges. They do that in the world. We don't do that. We're not supposed to anyway. We don't count sins. We don't keep a tally. Right? That makes us different. We don't take revenge. 
We don't take everything we can and give nothing back. Right? We believe that sin is sin. And being allowed to indulge your flesh at the expense of others isn't enlightened. It isn't tolerant. It's deadly. And it's destructive. We bear one another's burdens here. Right? We overlook offenses. Do you remember that? Remember the Bible saying that? It's a man's glory to overlook an offense. We get offended. What do we think? I have a right to retribution. Right? Well, not here. Not here. We overlook offenses. We provide for one another's needs. Right? We forgive each other's sins. We're an alternative community in the world because of those things. Not really by the way that we dress. Right? Not, not, I mean, again, think about a religion based on works like Islam. It, it, it's completely marked by appearance, by outward rituals. And I, I don't even say that to denigrate their commitment. It's fierce. Right? They're serious about what they believe and that it shows in their clothing and in their, and I wouldn't say, like, like when you hear, um, Christians say, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses are so passionate about evangelism. And we should be like that. Beloved, they're passionate about evangelism because they think if they don't do it, they're going to hell. They're not out there because they love you. That's not why they're knocking on your door. They're knocking on your door to earn their way in. All right, so we don't want to mimic that. How's that any different from the rest of the world and why people do things completely self-serving? We aren't marked by these things. We're marked by this crazy hope that no matter what happens to us, God has us. We're going to be okay. People believe that you have to secure that in your own strength and with your own wisdom. And so that's why people that would be anti-Christ put all their hope in government, right? And all their hope in politics, because it's the only chance they have for a savior. The only savior they can find is one in the world. We aren't like that. What marks us is the fact that we aren't like that. We don't panic like they do. We don't trust in what they trust in to be saved or to be safe. What do they lack? What is it really that they lack? It's, it, they lack faith. That's, that's what the world doesn't have. Faith in Jesus Christ to be their only Savior. So people live in panic, right? People that have no Savior or that have themselves as their Savior don't have any hope. There, there's nothing objective shaping their lives. When Jesus is not all they're hoping in and depending on, they are responsible to secure everything for themselves. That's what, that's why the world is the way it is, to to oversimplify it to some degree. You and I have been set free from this. Therefore, because God has saved us, because we're secure in our speech, in our conduct, in our attitude, we do not act like people who, if they aren't able to secure everything here, won't be able to secure anything anywhere. We're banking everything on God's promise, beloved. That's the symbol, our symbol in the world, that we belong to Him. Daniel Emery Price said, I love this, I, all my chips are on the resurrection. Right? Absolutely. God has forgiven our sins in Christ. He has shown us mercy. We have eternal life tonight, right now. We have a promise that will be kept We know He won't leave us. We know He won't forsake us. This is the truth of the gospel. 
that is meant to shape our fellowship together as God's family, as God's people, so that we look distinctly like people whose hope is only in Christ. That comes out in the way that we treat one another as a part of this family, believe it or not, mainly. That what God has already done for us, what God has secured for us in His Son, Jesus Christ, is the basis, if you look, of all new covenant commands to believers. All of them. The fact that it's already done. Therefore, this, right? Colossians 3, 7 through 10. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, right? When you were marked by the world, but now you must put them all away. What marks a person that lives outside of the promise in the world? Listen to it. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Right? Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. Notice that Paul is not saying do that. You notice that, beloved? Paul doesn't say you have to put off the old self, do that, and then put on the new self. He says that's already been done. It's, it's believing that it's been done. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. I don't remember doing that. Well, it's been done by Christ and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Put off, put on. Again, not clothing, not earrings, right? It's, it's, the calling is to put off the attitudes of the heart and the mind and the mouth that characterize the world. All the, the anger, wrath, malice, those things characterize people that don't have faith, that are in the world. And put on what characterizes hope in Jesus for salvation. What does it look like when all of our hope is in God? We're forgiving and kind. We don't hold grudges. We bear each other's burdens. We forgive one another. We overlook offenses. We talk kindly and sweetly to each other. To live by faith in this world is to live by a different set of values. It symbolizes hope that is placed elsewhere. That's what faith symbolizes. Ephesians 4, 22 and 25, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. All of this is happening in our minds, in the way that we think, the way that we perceive the world. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Why do people lie? Well, to protect themselves. To preserve themselves. To gain advantages. To get things they want. The radical nature of the gospel says here, there's no need for that. You don't have to protect yourself here. right? You're laid bare. You don't have to try to gain an advantage here. Right? Why not? Well, because Christ is all. And the promise has been made and the promise will be kept. So notice the rationale for the believer is, so don't lie. You're safe. You're, you're safe. You're secure. Don't, don't lie. There's nothing you need that would force you to lie. That would require that you lie. That's why we're marked by how we think. We're set apart by how we think. By the values we have. 
that drive our behavior. Not because we earn salvation by good works, but because we've already been set free from having to fight to secure our lives or to secure our identity through our works. James one twenty one. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. We live by a word. We live by a promise. That's what sets us apart. That's our symbol. Faith in a message. That's what marks us. Where Christ abides, the Holy Spirit is producing His fruit that marks us distinctly as the people of God. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. That Those are the distinguishing marks of the family of God. When those aren't present in a church, what must be happening? Not enough talk of behavior. Not enough commitment. No, the thinking is wrong. The mind is off. The eyes are not fixed on Christ. The eyes are not fixed on the promise. Right? That's, that's what's going on. The battle is in the mind. It's mainly internal. Right? Because our symbol, what marks us is faith. Hope. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Beloved, you and I, Christ has made our spiritual bodies in perfect shape to run until we die. that's, That's what Christ has done. The author of Hebrews is saying, throw off all these things that are weighing you down. Throw off the remaining hope that you have that this world is going to give you something. That that it's going to deliver what you can only find in Christ. And and notice, notice when he tells you to run with endurance, the focus is not on your running. The focus is not on your effort, on your lungs, on your... What does he say? Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. You can't see him. So what, what does he mean? Looking to Jesus, how? I mean, if, if, if we could see him, we'd know where to run. How do we look to Jesus? With the mind. The mind, beloved. The way that we think, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. All of the Christian life is focusing on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. The founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Believing this, looking to Christ, is what creates this alternative culture that marks off people as God's people for all the world to see. People that have hope, a hope so antithetical to the world that it, that it gets attacked and you have to defend it, Peter says. How dare you have that amount of hope? Right? How, how, how dare you have hope in a world like this? How can you have hope when there's so much wrong and so much evil and so much suffering and so much pain? It's not a hope that ignores that. It's a hope that believes Christ will put an end to it. And until then... We have faith and look to Him and love and serve one another. We are a people whose values are driven by the fact 
that here we have no land, here we have no lasting city. We are seeking the city that is to come. That frees us. It frees us to love and forgive and serve and give without demanding anything in return. What a, what, what a countercultural thing the church is. Right? That, that, that those people give to one another and expect nothing in return for it. Those people forgive each other. Those people bear with one another. They don't throw each other out when it goes really bad. You know, they, they, I think one of the things that social media does now is it makes it really easy to begin and end friendships at the drop of a hat. And so I know not everybody in here is on social media, but it's just such a pervasive thing that you just, you just cut people out of your life for not liking something or, you know, saying something the wrong way. And so I think cultures, by and large, as, as an older generation passes and a younger generation comes up, is, is so disconnected from intimacy. That's, that's not, like I'm not saying anything revolutionary that other people haven't said. I'm not, I didn't make that up, right? I mean, I think it's clear and other people have observed it. The church is something different. The church is something different. It's, it's, it's such a countercultural thing in the world. And, and again, not mainly by dress and jewelry and external things, right? Again, there may be implications for things like that in the faith. I don't deny that. But I'm saying what God has put forward to set us apart is this hope, this faith in Him that creates a person that's so free they do all these crazy things. I mean, if, if, if you take Jesus at His word, Imagine that. But if, if, if you take Jesus at his word, you're going to look like a psycho to the world. And I, I don't know how technical you have to get with turn the other cheek. I don't know how, you know, <laughs> does he literally mean that? Like if you get punched, stand back up, turn around, let him punch the other one. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I don't feel like I could do that, <laughs> provided that I could wake up after the first punch. I don't know. But, but if, if, it just he he taught again. I know we we used to talk about this on Wednesday nights. The way Jesus talks is so. It just sounds so irresponsible, right? Don't don't worry about your life, what you'll wear, what you'll eat. I mean, remember talking about that on Wednesday nights. Really, don't don't worry about it. I'll die if I don't eat. I can't go around with no clothes on. Jesus says, "Yeah, it's it's passing away. Don't worry about it." Then then Paul picks up on that. Remember the end of First Timothy. With food and clothing, we'll be content. I mean, it, it just, in other words, and again, he's, I don't think they're prescribing behavior. I, I, don't, I don't see that. I think what they're saying is that's literally possible because Christ is so good and the promise is so true and holds so tightly and so well. And it just, again, it's, it's not that the, this countercultural people called the church is created because we dress a certain way and use certain words and don't use others. And, and again, that might be a part of it. It's countercultural because we think so differently. We view the world so differently. That's why I would say it's so dangerous to get too embedded in politics because then even if you're trying to Christianize it, we just end up sounding like everybody else, as terrified as the other guy that our guy won't get in. Right? And trust me, I want one guy to get in and not the other. Like, I understand that. But I'm saying at the end of the day... 
Beloved, you're going to be all right. The promise is going to hold. Nothing is going to change it. Those are the facts that are meant to change me, that are meant to make me into someone who isn't so afraid, that again is free to. Now I can love my neighbor and not worry about whether I get love back. Do you see that? Not worry about whether or not I get forgiven in return. Not worry about whether or not they really pay for what they did. I don't have to live like this. I don't have to live demanding things from other people. Why not? Because we fixed our eyes on Christ. We're looking to Jesus. He's called us out. He's marked us as his own. He sealed us with his spirit. He saved us, forgiven us, washed us clean, confirmed his promises to us, and he will return for us. That's why. That's why. That's how we live in the promise, through faith, in our minds, fixed on Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the time that we've had this evening. I thank you for the way that your word speaks to us, comforts us, informs us, illuminates us, teaches us. Father, I thank you for it. I thank you for your son. For in him we have life that cannot be revoked. And so, Father, we trust in you. I pray that you watch over your people as they head into this week. Keep everyone safe. I pray for those without power in the county. I pray it not go on too long. I I pray that all will be well by morning, if not before. Please provide for and watch over your people. We ask and pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.